This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. You are listening to a bonus episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And yes, we are back to bonus with you. This is going to be a good one, folks, because... So I don't know if you guys listened to bonus episode number six. That was the one where I went hard in the paint about the Prince of Tides. And... People were completely shocked that I was able to talk about that for more than five seconds. People were like, I got to We got to get Stitcher premium for this shit, because by God, why is this woman so insane? That is my favorite fact that has come out of episode six is that somebody sent us a review that said I signed up for Stitcher premium just to hear Millie go ham on Prince of Tides. <laughs> I swear, I had this fr- this friend of mine from Atlanta basically wrote me and was like, me and my wife are slightly horrified, but we were there. <laughs> we we showed up for you, but like, damn. Um, and that's fine. I listen, I'm used to it. When you when you love something that much, you're like, it doesn't matter. This is how I roll. I feel you. And I'm about to give it right back to you. Yeah, I was about to say, because <laughs> right now, this episode, it's Danielle's turn. So what the concept of it is we're we're each taking turns. We're like I did one, we will do these again, but now it's Danielle's turn to talk about one movie that she just really needs to talk about. So why don't you set it all up for us? Well, strap the fuck in. <laughs> because I need not only want, I need to talk about a movie that was released in 2018 directed by mariel heller and the movie is can you ever forgive me nobody is going to pay for the writer lee israel right now i'm months behind in my rent and my cat is sick it's four in the afternoon you're drunk i'm hardly drunk great no problem my suggestion to you is you go out there and you find another way to make a living Why did I pick this movie to go hard on? It's a relatively new film. We don't do those Mm -hmm. very often. I can tell you that I have seen this movie, I'd say minimum 20 times since it came out. Minimum. It is, to me, a feel-good movie, which I know (laughs) is a very fucked up thing to say. No, I get it. I'm about to tell you I get it. Yep. This is, see, simpatico. Yeah, man. (laughs) It's a feel good movie to me for several reasons, but I also just I appreciate the way that this movie was developed, the way that it handled its subject matter and the true the true comedy of it. There's some comedy in this movie that is it's a drama. This is a drama. 
But the comedic moments hit so hard because it's just how people talk. And it's just these little inflections and these little moments that had me just sucked right the fuck in. I love this movie. So a little bit of backstory. It stars Melissa McCarthy, Richard E. Grant, who was nominated for an Academy Award. And I believe a Golden Globe as well for this movie. Um, Dolly Wells, who's a supremely underrated actress. She was yes. in that movie. Well, she's been in several movies, but she also was in that TV show on HBO called Doll and M, which is based on her real friendship with the actress. Oh, God. Emily Mortimer. I believe she co- she co-wrote the series. Um, fantastic actress. We've also got uh, a nice little appearance from Jane Curtin, who I'm thrilled to see. Anytime she's on screen. Love her. And Anna Devere Smith, who is just one of the most stunning playwrights. Uh, If you're not familiar with her work, I highly recommend that you get familiar with her work. Uh, She wrote a brilliant and beautiful play about the L.A. riots um, following the Rodney King verdict. She just does a lot of great work about critical race theory in the modern era. And she's also a great actress. (laughs) She's so good in this movie. So good, right? I, I just, I love so much about this film that I, I can barely contain it. Um, it was directed by Mariel Heller, who first kind of came to prominence. She was an actor, but she kind of came to prominence as a director with her film, Diary of a Teenage Girl, which was based on an incredible graphic novel. Uh, and That's a great movie. Yeah, she's got, a, and she's got a real, what I like about Mariel Heller, she's got this real eye for telling true stories of, about women. So you, when I feel like when I watch her films or when I watch her work, you're not looking at this kind of, you know, puffed up version of what people think women are like. She's really kind of ripping something back and showing you more of an underbelly of what I think people rarely get to see about women on film. And I just love her work so much. And she's just phenomenal. Um, But this is a, a movie that's based on a true story. And it is a true story of the writer Lee Israel. So some backstory on Lee. (laughs) Lee Israel was a biographer. Uh, She's a freelance writer in the 60s. She did a profile of Catherine Hepburn for Esquire in 1967, which is how she ended up with a personal note from Catherine Hepburn on Catherine Hepburn stationery. And then she did biographies of other women who, again, were kind of Interesting and complicated, like Dorothy Kilgallen, uh, Tallulah Bankhead, and Estee Lauder. What happened to her, and maybe I think part of the reason I really love this film is that it was almost like a cautionary tale for me personally, Mm. in a way. So I just identified with so much. Because she's a writer who we're not seeing in her prime. We're not seeing someone who has a sterling or even steady career. She is struggling. And she's a struggling writer in... New York as Lee Israel was. So Lee Israel in her late forties, um, you know, not really bankable, so to speak. And truly the thing that really gets me about the way she was conveyed in this film, not likable. She's a real son of a bitch, Lee Israel. And she says it like she wants to say it. You know, she just, she puts it out there. Um, she doesn't sugarcoat anything. And she's not really kind or likable in a lot of ways. So she had this career as a biographer, started to kind of tank. You know, she wasn't really bankable anymore. So she started working where she could. She took gig jobs. She was a copywriter. She was, you know, again, she went back to um, kind of a nine to five sort of gig. And 
that was hard and it wasn't really working for her. She was in debt and she had issues. Uh, so she started selling letters that were written by actors and stars of the time of, you know, times past. And the film is portrayed as her first letter that she sold uh, to collectors was her Catherine Hepburn letter. But that gave her the idea that she could not only sell more of these letters, but create more of these letters. So she started doing forgeries and she was eventually convicted of literary forgery in 1992. Uh, she forged more than 400 letters and not only forged them, but she started stealing real letters from archives and libraries. So she's charged wow. with this class D felony. Eventually she wrote a memoir uh, called Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, based on her experiences before she she died. Um, be really cool if she wrote it after she died, though. Right. Like a little hand coming up. <laughs> I mean, Crypt Keeper I would style. do it in a second. <laughs> Just click, 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 click. If I'm still <laughs> writing after I die, I want you to genuinely put me in some kind of soul rocket and just shoot me into the sun <laughs> like i'm done no more work no more work oh my god that would be you would be in hell maybe who knows 100 if i'm still working from beyond the grave i'm in hell for sure yes um, so yeah so that's what this movie is based on and melissa mccarthy plays lee israel and um it tells a story of 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 these forgeries, how they began. And also she had an accomplice. She had an accomplice, this friend named Jack Hawk, uh, who was played by Richard E. Grant in the film. And what a character he was in this movie. I think he deserved every, every award nomination he received. So beyond being the story of this complicated woman, who's kind of struggling, it's also a really interesting story of friendship to me, like something I've never seen on screen before. Now that I've given some background about the real woman, I think we're going to stick more with the film because that's what we're we're here to talk about. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, maybe you don't even know. I don't want to set you up for something that you maybe couldn't answer for me because I'd actually never heard of Lee Israel at all. First of all, yeah. I want to say for the record, this is a first watch for me. <gasps> And I was totally, I went in totally blind. I really didn't know what the story was about. I didn't know Lee Israel at all. Um, and it's fascinating because she was sort of, um, you know, she seemed to have done a lot of biographies about classic film stars. So it's weird that I didn't even know her from any of that. I just didn't know her at all. And so I was, I had to do like a, I fell into a hole afterwards yeah. trying to like look her up and kind of figure out what she was about. So do you know like much about her? I mean, is basically what was, was she like accurately portrayed in this in terms of like, she obviously did crimes, right? But um, <laughs> she's, she also was like, a, she lived in New York and she drank a lot uh, mm -hmm. according to the story. So I wasn't sure if all that kind of tracked. I don't know if you know about her a lot. I'm just curious. Well, it, to mine. And again, I, I found out about her when this movie was announced. So yeah. I didn't know about her either. And I think it's because she was disgraced. You know, she was really disgraced as, you know, from the literary community and from, from most of the communities that she was in, but she, she, nobody wanted anything to do with her really. Um, so from my knowledge of reading about how the film was developed, 
it's pretty close to how she was as a person. And there are some, you know, some some videos you can find in interviews and things like that that she did on the news and all that kind of stuff. So the details, I'm not sure of. Like, I don't know if she actually had a cat that was sick, you know, <laughs> but from the personality point of view and how she was, I think they probably they stayed pretty true to. Yeah, got was. it. Got yeah. it. Interesting. Yeah. And this is and again, this is a film that had a bunch of of stumbles. Like it had one big stumbling block, which is that the movie was originally slated to have Nicole Holoff Center direct it and Julianne Moore star in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then it it fell apart. And the only thing I was able to find out is that it fell apart because of like the the creative differences. Um, I don't know who had the differences. I don't know what the differences were. Mm -hmm. But the movie did not end up being released with Nicole Holoff Center directing and Julianne Moore starring. So when Mariel Heller took the helm, uh, she wanted to keep a lot of the script that Nicole Holoff Center had written. So that's why she's credited as a writer. And then Melissa McCarthy was the one who said, I'm interested in this. And I read one article on Screen Rant Daily where... Mariel Heller was talking about how this was actually a big risk for Melissa McCarthy. Uh, she usually plays a very comedic actress. She's, you know, kind of a pratfall kind of actress in a way, even though she doesn't really fall down a lot. But like in that genre, like she's the comedic relief. And yes. so this was a big, dramatic, meaty role for her. And I love Julianne Moore more than I can even express right now on this particular right. pod. But I think she was the that Melissa McCarthy was the exact right person to play this role. Yeah, I, I'm. I was curious about that after you said it, um, because now I think having seen it, I don't see Julianne Moore playing Lee Israel. I mean, I don't know what the real Lee Israel looks like, but for me, I did enjoy because first of all, I think Melissa McCarthy. I mean, I I like when she has dramatic roles, and yeah. you're, you're right, she doesn't play them often, and. She also is that type of actress, too. We kind of talked about this a little bit when we talked about like Betty Davis in Baby Jane. Melissa McCarthy is not afraid to look dowdy or old or she's not afraid to like not wear makeup or anything like that. And I think like I love that about her. Like I Absolutely. love that that she can really like reach into like a real person's life and be and look like a real person and not this like movie star trying to look like a real person. Um, Cause you so often see that in movies, especially movies like this, where it's like, Oh, you have this like beautiful young actress playing like a lonely writer and she's beautiful <laughs> and young. All she has to do is take off her glasses and she's a model. And guess what? Yeah. When I take off my glasses, I'm still a goblin. <laughs> so I'm glad that you said that she actually for you was the perfect person to play it because perfect yeah after you said julianne moore i was like literally like oh i don't know if i could see that but i can't you know. see it and even and the only way i could see it is w was with like you know like a horrible fat suit or something that is just so yeah. actively not making her the real person you know i think yes. it, would it would take too much artifice to make her real and that just feels like a backwards way way into it um but melissa mccarthy again stunning woman beautiful and also willing to go here with the prosthetics and the wigs and everything and just, yeah, just beautiful portrayal of a real person. And that is something that I think is the primary reason why I like this movie. The movie itself, it's kind of ugly. It's grim. 
it's a grim fucking movie. And there are a few points that I'm going to hit upon as, you know, the, the distinctive reasons why I love the ugliness and the griminess of this film. But starting first and foremost with this apartment, mm. it is a terrible but well lived in New York City apartment. And everyone tries to capture that on screen. And I don't think anyone's done it as well as they've done it in this film. Yeah. It was to me really cozy in good and bad ways. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Um, but like definitely what I would see, you know, as a writer's place, like just kind of like their little bunker with books going to the ceiling and, yep. you know, just that kind of like lived in a little dark. Um, I love, I loved the apartment. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't like eventually what you find out about the apartment. Right. Just that it hasn't been cleaned in a long time, <laughs> but <laughs> looks alone. It, it, it felt very cozy to me. And there, there are moments like there's this one moment where Lee Israel Melissa McCarthy as Lee Israel reaches up to get a box and she kind of pulls from a tall shelf uh, to get some paper and all these papers start fluttering down. And I don't know why that stands out to me as such a distinctive moment, because it, I think it's because it just feels so real when you live in an apartment for 15 years in New York and you're just trying to find a place to just fucking put something that's where it's going to end up. And you're going to remember that it's there because you can't help it. You look at it every day. And it's those kinds of moves that I just really appreciated. And also just, again, right off the bat, first, you know, first or second scene, you're looking at her having bugs like flies, on dead flies on her pillow. And she just wipes them off and turns it over and goes to sleep. And I'm like, this telegraphs again, so much to me about who this person is. And how lived in that apartment is with them in it. Like what they've adapted as the attitude of living in a space like that, which is, oh, well, fuck it. I got to go to sleep anyway. And, you know, we see later in the movie that she asks her super for an exterminator, but because she's behind in her rent, he doesn't even answer her. And so she's just living in this filth and kind of squalor um, and then trying to create in that and trying to keep her career going in that and trying to come up with a new idea for a book and trying to get her agent to pay attention to her. That to me is, again, primary reason why I really love this film. Those moments. Yes. You just said a mouthful because honestly, that was my favorite part of this movie was the tiny little moments like the production design moments that informed you so much about who this person is like at the beginning of the movie um there's a scene where uh lee goes to her agent her book agent or her book yes. publisher and goes to this like literary party or whatever and there's a moment where she goes into the guest bathroom and she pulls back <laughs> this like i guess it's like a, a drawer or a curtain or like a cabinet and there's like dozens of half used rolls of toilet paper meaning like a toilet paper roll like right before it ends right like about halfway finished or less <laughs> and they're just stacked in the in the cabinets and and essentially like lee goes to her publisher or whoever the jane her Curtin character yeah. her agent and it's like why do you have like all these like little half used rolls of toilet paper in your cabinet and she was like oh because i want the guests to be able to use a new role yeah and the weirdest part about that is that i just literally went to a house 
within the past month where I saw the same <gasps> thing. No. And I could and I could not understand why. I was like puzzled. Like and I wasn't snooping, don't get me wrong. I was ba- it was basically on a shelf, like a visible shelf. Yeah. And there was a bunch of like half used rolls of toilet paper stacked up and I was like what the hell is that about? Like, that's so weird to me. <laughs> it's like, like you're stepping would... into someone's psychosis. Yes. And then after I saw this, I was like, oh, that's the reason. And then I'm like, wow, that says a lot about, it really says, okay, it says a lot about her agent, but it says more about Lee. Yes. And sort of like why she would find that weird. Like, so you're basically in the scene going, Lee is not that person. She is not this person who cares enough to fucking start a new role for guests at a book party. She is not that person, right? She does not care about comfort for herself or others. I love that stuff. And it was happening all throughout the movie. And it was, it's great. Loved it. Completely. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And and I think in the same vein, the thing, the other moment that I really need to talk about with this film is how before Lee discovers forgery, she is carding because, again, this is set in 1991 and she is carding bags and bags and bags full of books to bookstores to sell them in order to get cash to live. And just, you know, that kind of ironic shift of a writer who's selling books so they can live, coupled with the absolute, that bone crushing misery that only cities can provide where they make every single thing you have to do as difficult as possible. So she goes in to sell these books. They only want two of the books and they're only going to give her $2 for those books. And then they expect her to just take the rest of the books back. And she's like, please, I carted these here. I don't want them in my house. You don't even have to pay me for them. Just take them. And that kind of, again, those, those, those built in miseries that are so specific to not just a type of city, but a class of person living in that city. Like I was that person. I remember selling CDs. I remember selling books. I remember having to bring my personal belongings somewhere with the hopes that I could leave feeling lighter in more ways than one. Yeah. I love those moments. Just nailed those moments. Yeah, there was there was so much of this and it just was really kind of like, you know, it all contributed to the personality of who Lee was and her character is so fascinating to me because, OK, you I want to go back to you talking about how this was a feel good movie, OK, <laughs> because people are going to be like, what? But honestly, I get you, because for me, I think the the thing that I loved that this was about a queer woman writer in a time in New York in the early nineties where gays and lesbians were not today. And I think that was such a important part of the story for me was just knowing that about them and knowing that this is taking place. And it's sort of like, uh, you know, the HIV AIDS era in New York. And I don't know. I, I just think that setting it in that world made me like the movie a lot more. 
Absolutely. And I think, I don't know if it's the same way for you, but I felt like the importance of that for me is that we were looking at two people who are outliers because of their queerness, but then they are also outliers within the queer community. So they are not fitting in in any way that they are told they need to fit in and in some ways are resisting it. And I think it's to find your tribe without that commute, that instant community that you don't fit into. It takes a little bit more effort. And I think that's why their friendship was a little bit more vibrant to me, because they were making an effort to be in each other's lives. Right. But also, too, to to that point, it's clear that Lee is an introvert. Right. And Jack isn't. Jack is like way more in the mix. And, you know, he has, you know, many dates and he kind of goes out. He likes to go dancing. And she's the total opposite. And so it's nice to see these two different energies kind of come together because you're right. There like there isn't monolithic queerness or monolithic gayness. That to me was important to see the sort of the two different energies of their friendship kind of come together, you know. Completely. And those introverted moments were so important and so poignant as well. Like that one scene where Lee is sitting on the couch watching an older film. You might know the film. I didn't, (laughs) but she's watching this older film. Yeah, I thought I did, but I was like, oh, I don't think I know this one. (laughs) But she's talking along with this movie. And I love that moment so much of someone who is an introvert and gets her joy from watching something that is comfortable for her, that is outside of the norm of what other people are watching. She's not watching Friends. She's not watching anything like that. She's watching an old movie that she can quote verbatim because it is important to her life. That moment killed me. Like those moments kill me in in these small heartbreaking ways, but just ways that again, like this to me, it's a, this, this movie is an incredible character study. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not lost on me that she's like an old movie head. It really isn't because a lot of a lot of what people love about old movies is glamour, is excitement, is a sort of different way of of life that they don't have. I mean, shit, if you want to get down to brass tacks, that's what I love about old movies. That's why, I, you know, I think most people that like movies and are really passionate about them love the escapism of them, Mm -hmm. you know, and so that. It all these little moments kind of really came together and just sort of crystallized who the Lee character was. And then you see sort of her potential flirtation with the bookshop woman. Um, And that I don't know if that part was a part that you were really going to talk about, because I was like, yeah. That to me was like one of the realest dates ever. Like I was just like, wow. Okay. Like definitely. Yeah. Stunning in its accuracy. (laughs) And it's true. I love that whole relationship because I think from the beginning, you've got someone who one does not know Lee Israel in this film when flirting with, with this character does not know that she's being flirted. Like she just does not even consider that someone is flirting with her, that Anna is flirting with her. And I love that, that she's just kind of like, well, here I am selling my books, selling my letters. Um, And then when she does catch on, like Anna just gave me her number, (laughs) like I should do something about this. They go on the most awkward date of all time, where at the end she just kind of leaves. And it's so fucking real because it's like there's no big send off. There's no passionate kiss. There's no any. It's just like this was an awkward date. I don't know what to do. I'm going home. And she does. (laughs) There's that moment where 
where Lee's like, well, I need a drinking buddy. And Anna just basically like shuts the menu and is like, well, yep, <laughs> that's oh. what I'm working with. Like I, I didn't see this right at all. And I was just like, it's so funny because I've been both. <laughs> yes. like, I've been the absolutely <laughs> clueless person who's on a date with somebody who is showing that they like me. And then I'm like, don't know what to say and just flub it epically. But then I've been the other person. I've been the Anna character where somebody just says the one thing that you like, don't want to hear. And it just kills the vibe. Just and cuss you like, at the knees. <laughs> yeah. So bad. That, mm. And especially because you can tell that Anna's the kind of character who has a really hard time opening up in that way and connecting. Yeah. And so when she says, cause she's inching towards it, she, you know, Anna's not, you know, the, the polar opposite of Lee, they're actually very compatible, but yeah. she's inching towards this notion of, I like you, I like you, I like you. And her, the thing that she says um, is when Lee says, you know, I like being alone and Anna says, well, you don't like being alone all the time. Like you're here with me right now. And then that's when Lee says, well, I always need a drinking buddy. That is the most painful fucking scene I've ever, mm. <laughs> I've ever experienced in a theater. I sank into my chair, sank when I saw that scene, like fucking hell. But this is also this other, this unforeseen layer as well, where Lee was falling for someone that she was actively scamming. Yeah. So she's creating her own complications here about that. And that also to me was translated beautifully in that moment and in that date where it's like you don't really know is lee pulling back because she's just not a romantic person and doesn't want to invite this especially once we get to know more about her ex and her relationship with her ex or is she truly just afraid to engage further with anna in a deeper level because she's scamming her constantly selling her forgeries constantly yeah, it's hard to say because I, you know, there is that element to it. And this is what really stresses me out about like scam stories and like scam movies is the anxiety of being found out, a bit of getting busted. And there's the, I don't know, just a lot of a lot of points in the film where obviously like it's at a certain point, she's getting away with it. She's getting away with it. Then she goes to meet with that one guy mm -hmm. in, you know, the blonde haired guy. And he kind of gives her that split second extra look. That's like, you know, some people may not be, you know, doing the right thing. Exactly. And he kind of lets it dangle for a brief moment. She's like that moment of where she's realizing, Oh, maybe somebody's on to me now. I mean, honestly, like that type of situation is so, so stressful. I mean, honest, I, I, I think it's just kind of a primal fear thing. of like, Oh, 100 percent. Know. And it's, it's exacerbated by the fact that she was gaining confidence. Like you could see her gaining confidence in her ability to do this, this work. Like this is what she came to see as her purpose. And yes. so as you see in the film, she's going around, you know, kind of timidly at first selling letters and can't she cannot believe it's working and then very quickly becomes like a virtuoso in forgery and is just slamming stuff on the counter like, yep, you're going to want to buy this for a thousand bucks and look at this one. And it's truly shocking in a beautiful way to see 
her crestfallen and when she starts to realize that people are onto her and how it beco- she becomes so much more of an interior character again after that moment. So to see someone who doesn't have a lot of confidence outwardly gain confidence and then lose it, I think is just, again, that that ebb and flow of this film. Those are the moments that kill me. I really want to talk about in terms of her being a virtuoso, the methods that she used to create these these letters. So it started out with just trial and error. And she tried to freehand signatures that didn't work, turned her TV on its side and used it as a light box and started copying the signatures directly. She bought different typewriters for different writers. She would put paper in the oven to age it and bake it. I mean, this was truly a lot of effort that she went through to affect this lie. Yeah. I lo- I just love seeing it. I love that those moments where you're getting to see not just the fact that she's written it or typed it or done it, that she's putting such tremendous effort into it more so than her own work because she's starting to become known for the letters, even though they don't know that they're fake. So there's this one point where she's talking to Jack. Um, and this is after she's not just forging signatures or, you know, kind of adding one or two. She's writing entire new letters, like all the letters are fake from top to bottom. And she says to Jack at one point, I'm a better Dorothy Parker than Dorothy Parker. Because people mm. are like quoting her and they can't believe these letters that she's finding, you know, quote unquote. So the heartbreak of that for me as a writer in seeing that she's doing her best work and will never be recognized for it. Um, she is quite eloquent and quite funny and will never be recognized for it, not in a positive way. And so all the effort that she's putting in is lost because of the of what she's doing. Right. Heartbreak. It is. Um, I want to step out of the plot and just ask you a general question about letters. Yeah. Okay. There's so much in this movie that references like the market for these right. letters, right? About like, you know, somebody like paying, wanting to pay like $200 for a letter, $1,900 for a letter. And then the there's that whole like, I don't know if it's a convention or like a, like a, yeah. a, a, a letter writing market where a bunch of people are like selling letters of famous people to each other now i kept thinking about this as i was going through this because i was like no disrespect to lee israel because she did make bank on what she did right however would i ever buy a letter from a famous person that was written to somebody else that i don't know for me i feel like i don't know unless they wrote it to me right i that's something that I would treasure and keep, but I can't imagine like buying a letter that has nothing to do with me. It's just sort of like, okay, Truman Capote wrote this letter to somebody that I don't know from, and and I'm going to spend $2,000 on it. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I am right there with you. I think it is one (laughs) of those strange collectible markets that has popped up over time and out of intense, out of the intensity of love for something that somebody had or a person or, you know, that it sprang up around that. Um, I'm not that person. I, I don't put a lot of stock in items that don't directly have anything to do with me. But personal letters to me feel so different. Yeah. It feels like such a different thing to be excited about. And I think that if the letters are revealing, then somebody will write about it. You know, like we found this letter and she says, you know, she dated five guys at once. Like somebody would write about that. But 
it is it, it's a strange market i agree basically that it's a strange market and it really just speaks to how arbitrary it is because the pricing yes. ranged so much depending on who wrote the letter and again for something that's not personal i just don't understand how you put a, a price on that yeah because that was another fascinating thing about the movie was that when when she was going to these sellers and they were kind of discussing the metrics that they would judge a, a, a higher price letter versus a not so high high price letter and it was basically like whoever it was one of the characters basically says oh yeah they don't really a lot of times that these letters don't say anything interesting that they're just like hey what's up how you doing okay bye and it it would be more money if they said something like meatier, juicier. Right. And that's what I was thinking, too, because I was like, OK, if I was reading a letter from, you know, Catherine Hepburn to Spencer Tracy, that was basically right. like, yo, what's up, honey? Better be naked when I get home or something, you know, like <laughs> I would maybe buy that letter because I know both parties involved and I can understand the history of it. Like if I if I saw a letter from Dorothy Parker to like fucking robert benchley or whoever from the algonquin <laughs> roundtable maybe right. i would pay for a letter knowing that the two people were very famous and they had a and the letter was an exchange of their friendship but if it was like dorothy parker writing to her great aunt right and saying really much of nothing why yeah. would i own that and frame it i don't know that's just me i'm and maybe i'm stupid and ignorant no so. i'm with you i think it is a very niche market for a reason because it is only interesting to certain people and only they can tell you why it's interesting to them there's no like universal like yes letters are interesting and as somebody who you know i still write letters i'd be fucking yeah. horrified if somebody decided to sell one of my letters that i wrote a personal letter to a friend i would be horrified if any of that shit ever came out and saw the light of day like it's not for you it's for them that's the that's the beauty of the relationship is that i'm writing this for them but i think that maybe that's part of it is that in a time where letters were more common yes maybe that was part of the draw is like you know these are famous people we know they're writing letters because it's how you communicate it's kind of like how like you know people hack emails and hack the cloud now yes. um Maybe that was part of the draw is like we want to get this glimpse into their personal life because back in the day, you only knew a celebrity from the thing they were famous for. Yeah. And just the idea of the authentication process, too, because yes. obviously she got busted after the Noel Coward thing where basically she writes this fake letter where he is talking very free and easy about the fact that he's gay mm -hmm. and somebody authenticated it and said no he would actually not talk about that because he was closeted um and that essentially starts this chain of events that where she gets caught and so i just think that's interesting i don't know anything about that world so i'm just i was very fascinated by that part there's actually and i don't remember the name of it um maybe alexis i don't know if you can look it up there is a documentary about bookstores that came out recently like within the last two years and i watched it and it does kind of explain a little bit, not necessarily about letters, but it does explain a little bit about um, the world of collectors and people who, who specifically collect books. Because books are wild. Like there are books that are, you know, the, the cover is made out of human skin. You know, there's like, you know, a book where it's like only one edition was ever made. That right. I can understand a little bit where you're kind of on the hunt for something unique. Um, but you're right. Like the letters is it's a strange and personal thing to collect 
And I think that to me would have been the primary signal that this, these were forgeries. I say as someone, you know, in hindsight who knows this story, but the fact that she had so many of them that she was willing to sell. Yes. Thank you. Um, the documentary is called the booksellers and the fact that she had so many of them, I thought should have tipped someone off long before she was actually caught. But it's, it's, it's an interesting world. It's an intricate world. And I think it's, it's, Again, the thing that we're looking at in this film is someone who is turning to a life of crime as a way to survive, but she's staying connected to the thing that she's passionate about. She's still keeping herself in this literary world, just not in the way that she wants. And I just loved it. I love this movie. I could watch it over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I haven't even asked you about the cat. I mean, I just that whole. Oh, gosh. The heartbreak of this cat. So she, this is a, a cat that's 12 years old. She, you know, Lee Israel in the film has this very old cat. And part of the reason that also sets her off on this journey is that her cat gets sick and she takes it to the vet. And they say, we cannot treat your cat because you have a bill, an outstanding bill with us. And the bill is for $82. And she doesn't have, they're asking her to pay for half of it before they can see your cat. And she does not have $41. And if you have ever been there in your life, you know the pain mm. of that, even if it's not related to a pet, just the abject pain of no longer being able to care for even the most basic things. Because again, she had a, a pretty great career for a while. And I'm sure that when she was getting book advances and, you know, she didn't take this cat thinking there's going to be a day that comes when I'm not going to be able to take care of this thing. So it compounds her own misery that her cat is also ill and that she can't care for the cat. Just the the notion that, again, this is someone who on the on the outside does not appear to be a terribly caring person, but has given all of her love and care to this pet. And it's it's devastating. It's devastating to watch that she's putting all of her love and care into an ailing pet. Yeah, I mean, gosh. Who hasn't been there? Who, you know, honestly, there were so many moments of this movie, these little moments that really connected me to her. And it was the definitely the pets. It was heartbreaking, you know, to watch her kind of plead with the veterinarian assistant like my cat is sick. And no, I don't have forty one dollars. I have fourteen dollars like it was sad because it's like that desperation of just wanting to take care of this thing that has that is this very pure and and doesn't want anything from anybody and that you are bonded so closely with that animal was so sad and yeah i mean there's just like these these tiny moments where you really got the scope of sort of her inner life of Lee's in her life. And it was anytime they would talk about her pet, when they would talk about her apartment, when they would kind of talk about her as a writer and how she felt like that, that one scene very early on in the movie where she basically goes to her agent and is like, I need a book deal. Like, yeah. come on, I did X, Y, and Z. And her agent is basically telling her like the writing is on the wall. Like you can no longer write these like biographies of like these fuddy duddy celebrities, these old celebrities that no one gives a shit about anymore. And 
I mean, I won't talk about this too much, but I'm like, I understand the pain of appreciating something that the modern world does not value. Okay. And just being like, not able to understand sort of like, why can't I be a writer? It's because everything that I I'm interested in is not sellable. Uh, Right. Completely. And her agent tells her that flat out. Nobody knows who Lee Lee Israel is because you have buried yourself behind your subject. And so she tells her at one point, you know, if you really want to make it as a writer and if you want to make money, you have to either become a different person. Or you have to find your own voice and write about things in your own voice, not about other people, but about the things that, you know, will will help you stand out. And it's brutal because I feel like there's no we're watching this woman out of time kind of who, you know, there's no value in what she has to offer, but she also can't and won't and really shouldn't have to change that in order to survive. And it's, again, these movies, any movie where someone is falling through the cracks, I'm instantly there like that. I don't know why I gravitate to those, those kinds of films, but I love it. I love looking at through this movie in particular, these types of people and types of jobs and types of skills that we just let fall by the wayside and kind of do not care what happens to the person at all. It's, it's, it does, it does break me down, but it's also inspiring in a different way. Yeah, for sure. And you know, the the best part that happens after that moment at her editor, her agent's office is where she's basically going off on Tom Clancy. And she's basically like, how's this guy getting millions of dollars? And he's like a fucking joke. And you know, the Jane Curtin character is like, he plays the game. And I just kept thinking about that in a modern context. And as a writer, I mean, maybe you can speak more to this than I can, but like, It's almost like Lee's problem, that essential problem, which is that she just wants to write. She wants to write about subjects and not about herself. And she wants to just do this for the rest of her life. It almost like that, that simple request is almost unheard of these days because so much of being a writer is about like being a personality and being a brand and being on social media. I mean, I just thought she, if she could not cut it in 91, Oh oh man, not now. No, she'd be able to cut it now. And that is, it is something that makes, maybe that's why I identify with this movie so much, (laughs) so much because it does make me feel out of place sometimes. Cause I'm very much that person where I thought, you know, I think to myself, I did not become a writer so that I could be out in front of a camera or be seen or be a personality or be any of that. Like I enjoy being behind the scenes. I enjoy this being the way that I communicate and I don't want to do the other stuff. I don't want to have to, you know, start the accounts and do the interviews and do all that. I don't want to play the game sometimes. And at my core, I never want to play the game, but as a realistic person, I know that I have to give a little bit for that. Doesn't mean I'm not proud of the work I do and I don't want to promote it or support it, but I don't think that should be my job as the person who writes it. Yeah. And I I mean, honestly, like it seems to me like a lot of creative people, not just writers, but a lot of creative people are not, you know, that they are more kind of inward and less sort of like, oh, I just want to be a performer. You know, a lot of times people who write and, you know, people who do things behind the scenes like it that way and they don't want to be 
in front of the camera speaking on behalf of the things that they do. They just want to write it and get it done. That's a, that to me was interesting. That was a, a huge part of the movie for me. Yeah, well, because it's it's the great the greatest fallacy of the modern age is that everyone wants to be famous. And that's not true. It's not true. Some people just want to survive. And some people just want to get by doing the thing that they love. Not everyone wants to be famous. Not everyone wants to be seen. Not every, everybody wants to or needs to be in front of a camera or to have their lives validated from the outside in. And I think when you take an introvert who's probably more prone to that method of thinking, it is the most disastrous thing you can introduce to their life. The fact that they have to be so they have to act in a way that is so antithetical to who they are as a person in order to do the thing that they want to do. That is soul crushing. Yeah. And just to have that that option presented to her where it was like, you either have to be a completely different person. It's like. Not possible. Not possible. Why, why is that even, a, you can't even bring it up if you wanted to, like in this case. And she's in her late forties at this point. Like even if she wanted to change, there's, there's no change. Like you are set in, in so many of your ways. The shifts that you can make at that point are not, not personality bending. Yeah. And that was the big, to me, the, the, one of the best scenes and the reason why I love um, the scene with her and her ex when they meet up and they talk was that that was the first moment that Lee was basically like, you're the only person that really knows me. And I I'm the least guarded around you and I'm struggling and I just need to have some kind of access to you right now to kind of go through what I'm going through. And the ex is basically like, it's not my job anymore. Like you're no longer my business, but I, I could completely understand that in her, in that moment for the Lee character, she was like, I, I need to like be in a, in a comfort zone if possible, you know? Oh, and she doesn't trust a lot of people. She doesn't let a lot of people in. She doesn't have that relationship with a lot of people. Yeah. And it's just, again, another layer of heartbreak to see her trying to tangibly get something from someone that they're no longer willing to give. Because it, it, it is a job. And that's something that I love about that scene as well, is that her ex gives her the business. And this is <laughs> this is the character that um, that Anna Devere Smith plays, Elaine. And she tells her about herself like you were really fucking hard to, <laughs> to live with. And she feels freer not having that job. And it's heartbreaking on both sides because I feel like, God, how miserable for Lee to hear that that she was a project for someone that was difficult to complete. But also how miserable to say that to someone to really drive home the point of why you can't be there for them anymore is that they are too much for you. Yeah. There's so much of like, it's interesting. I keep going back to this idea of it being a feel good movie. And I think the reason why for me is that I feel like this is one of the most I don't know, accurate is the word, but this is one of the most, the truest, most honest portrayals of like loneliness yes. that I think I've seen in film. Honestly, like I was really like taken aback by just the trueness of it. And for some reason that sort of feels comforting. And I don't really know why that is. I think it's because you're always in your own loneliness and you are always convinced that you're the only person that feels this way. And so when you see it in a story or like in a movie or in a, in a language that's not yours, that it was told to you in a song or something like that, it is like kind of this, 
the feeling is the, is the confirmation, you know? And it, I think that's why this movie, I think, is is as good as it is, but also the reason why it might maybe be feel good. I don't know if yeah. that's, you know? But for me, that's kind of how it felt, which I was like, wow. It's getting to these really dark moments, and that is sort of comforting to me for some reason. I completely agree. And I, I agree that the thing that makes it feel like a feel good movie to me is that you're seeing loneliness validated, but also told in a true way. And that is something I'm not used, not accustomed to seeing. And I wouldn't even say that my life is as lonely or as dire as, you know, Lee Israel in this film, but there's so many different levels of loneliness that they portray or that Mariel Heller portrays that I feel like it's easy to, to find yourself in moments where you have felt that at some point. And it is really powerful to know in that subversive kind of inadvertent way that you're alone, but you're being seen. And that's kind of all anyone wants, even if you're, especially if you're an introvert, like, okay, you see me, but you're not going to like fuck with me too much. But I feel yeah. great that you know what I'm going through or that you can see how I am or why I am the way I am. And um, yeah, it feels it feels powerful, I think. And it's also, you know, I joke about it being a cautionary tale because I'm a writer, but I think that there, what feels good to me also is seeing all the ways that this writer was willing, the lengths that she was willing to go to to kind of engage with her craft is what makes it feel like a good feel good movie to me as well it doesn't work out at all and she does something highly illegal <laughs> but just seeing the passion seeing passion come out of a passionless person makes me feel good <laughs> yeah because at the end of the day she did have i mean she had she, this movie is about friendship she had a, a friendship she obviously had love in her life with her animals so it was that kind of thing where as, as much as it was grim and dreary and lonely in many parts of this movie, there was these bright moments for her. And I think, too, like you just said, I mean, she didn't give up on herself. I mean, basically, that was the thing. She didn't give up. She basically just like took a different road. <laughs> but, you know, she's she, she, she's like a, tried to she's needed to survive and she survived. Right. And I, I like what you're saying there about her not giving up on herself, because that's something that also is very easy to pick up on in this film that I also deeply love. She likes herself just the way she is. Yeah. She's not trying. It's not that even that she can't change. She doesn't want to change. She likes herself as acerbic as she is, as off putting as she is. She likes herself. And you don't get that narrative with women who don't fit in the norm very often. It's usually like, I, I need to change something so I can fit in. Or, you know, I like myself, but I'm condemned to a life of weirdness and loneliness in a castle because of it. I like that she's just plopped in the middle of the biggest city on earth or one of the biggest cities on earth. And she's like, fuck you, deal with it. I like myself the way I am. You know, when she quits that job early in the in the film and again, small moments that matter a lot to me. She dumps out the ice of her glass. She downs her glass of whiskey, dumps the ice, and then puts the <laughs> glass in her bag. Like she's leaving nothing. She will not let any of these people take anything from her. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. Oh, man. And too. she likes herself. Like she's cool with who she is, even though it is detrimental to how she lives. Yes. I love this movie. I could talk about it for another hour, 
You're you're more than welcome to, by the way. <laughs> but I'm just saying that, like, I'm so glad we got to talk about it. I'm so glad you got to see it. Yeah. Because I, I know that you did tell me that you'd never seen it before. And I'm glad that you saw it and liked it because I, I had a feeling it would be right up your alley. Yeah, really liked it a lot. I liked everything about it. Just like the story. I liked that it was based on a real person. I liked the people in it. I liked the vibe. I liked, you know, the hair, the clothes. The, hair. <laughs> the 90s of it all. Oh, yeah, it was it was great. I loved that it was about, you know, a gay writer. Um, I love that it took place in New York. I mean, there's just everything. It hit on a lot of different levels for me. So thank you. Of course. Thank you for letting me talk about it. This is wonderful. Ugh. Listen, anytime you know that this is what we do on this podcast, you listen to me talk for over 70 minutes about the goddamn <laughs> Barbra Streisand. So anytime you want to do it, just let me know. Thanks, friend. Well... Thanks for listening to our bonus. Yes. Thank you so much to all of the uh, people who have signed up for our Stitcher Premium. If you um, want to buy some merch from us, uh, we're at the Exactly Right store. We're, we've got t-shirts, mugs, sweatpants, everything. Lots of different sizes. And then, I don't know, I, social media. Yeah. Find us on Twitter and Instagram. Find us on our email. If you want to write to us, you can write to us at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Uh, we love hearing from you. And yeah, watch this film. Get get into it. Get pick one movie that you're just like, I love this movie so much. Watch it again. Just give yourself a day or two to really get into it. Spend some time with it. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 